KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Canary Row in Monterey, California, is a poem, a sink, a grating noise, a nostalgia, a dream. Canary Row by John Steinbeck opens with vivid imagery. Canary Row is the gathered and scattered. It hedges the line between poetry and prose. Tin and iron and rust and splintered wood. And paints the setting for characters of a California fishing community. Chipped pavement and weedy lots and junk heaps. Right in the second sentence is the sardine fishery. Sardine canneries of corrugated iron. One of the first California industries to take root and one that famously crashed in the 1950s. The Sardine Collapse launched a multi-institutional research collaboration to figure out what was going on. This collaboration is ongoing, and it has led to one of the oldest and largest fishery data sets in the world. That data is housed here in San Diego. For this episode, I joined a research team on the San Diego-based vessel, the NOAA ship Reuben Lasker. I spoke with... My name is Emily Gardner. Dave Faber. Amy Hayes. James Wilkinson. Ryan Overcash, and I am the chief scientist of the Winter Kalkoffee Survey. Researchers who are collecting physical and biological oceanographic data in the California current. This data has been used to help keep fish populations healthy. And the data collected from that are used to help with sardine stock assessments. And since it was put into place, we've seen that it is helping the population, which is good. Awesome. (laughs) And it's effective because it's a long-term data set. In order to understand how any creature naturally behaves, you need to study them for a long time. Small data sets are rarely forgiving of the unexpected. Sometimes the seas are just too damn rough and we're bobbing up and down so much that you can only do what you can do. Neptune will, Neptune will laugh at your plan, essentially, is, is kind of your situation. So, When you collect marine animals, there are certain flat worms so delicate that they are almost impossible to capture whole for they break and tatter under the touch. Data that tells a story takes time and patience. Long-term data sets show trends, patterns, and cycles. You must let them ooze and crawl of their own will onto a knife plate, and then lift them gently into your bottle of seawater. I am your host, Emily T. Griffiths, and you're listening to Device. Stay with us. And perhaps that is the best way to write this book to open the pages and to let the stories crawl in by themselves. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Along Cannery Row, there are many lovable characters. In this episode of Device, I'm going to highlight a few. Mac was the elder, leader, mentor, and to a small extent, the exploiter of a little group of men. We are introduced to Mac as he threatens the owner of the grocery shop, Lee Chong. 
Lee had just acquired a new property, and Mac was asking Lee to let him and his crew live there. Wouldn't let anyone break in or hurt anything. Kids might knock out the windows, you know. Or really telling. Place might burn down if somebody don't keep an eye on it. Across the street from Lee was the owner and practitioner of Western Biological Laboratory. Everyone on Cannery Row likes Doc. Doc tips his hat to dogs as he drives by, and the dogs look up at him and smile. Loosely based on Steinbeck's real-life friend and notable Monterey Bay marine biologist, Ed Ricketts, Doc is a curious, open-minded guy. Many residents of Cannery Row come to Doc with questions, and Doc approaches every question as best he can. Hazel, one of Mac's boys, asks Doc about stink bugs. Well, what they got their asses up in the air for? Doc gives him two answers. First, he is honest. I don't know why. He's not a man that pretends to know something that he doesn't. Second, he provides a theory which is somewhat whimsical. I think they're praying. What? The remarkable thing isn't that they put their tails up in the air. The really incredibly remarkable thing is that we find it remarkable. We can only use ourselves as yardsticks. If we did something as inexplicable and strange, we'd probably be praying, so maybe they're praying. As cool as that imagery is, we now know that common black stink bugs in the U.S. Southwest, also known as pinacate beetles, stick their tails in the air as a warning that they can let loose a noxious spray of repellent chemicals. It's why they're stinky. Occasionally, Doc enlists Mac and the boys to help him collect samples for his biological supply business. What do you guys do with them? You can't eat them. They study them. What do they find to study? They're just starfish. There's millions of them around. I could get you a million of them. Lives in Cannery Row revolved around the bountiful sardine industry, a small silvery fish. People went to work when the fishing fleet came home, sorting the catch and tending to the fishermen's um, other needs. And they rested while the fleet was at sea. Everything works in cycles on Cannery Row. In the late 1930s, the sardine fishery was booming. I, I mean, I'm always amazed when I look back on the archive photos of the sardine fishery and how they came in so loaded that, you know, there were sardines on the deck. I mean, they couldn't even fit them in the hold. Yeah. And they were just fishing, you know, just taking as much as they could carry. Between 1936 and 1945, when Cannery Row was written and published, Central California landed an average of 332,000 tons of sardines per year. It wasn't only that the fish ran in silvery billions and money ran almost as freely. Then, between 1947 and 48, the average sardine landing dropped to 118,000 tons. Ooh, that's good. Right. That's good. In 1950, it was 33,000. Yeah, I don't know about this. By 51, it was only 961 tons. Oh, that's that is too good to be true. And in 1953, one ton of sardines was landed in Central California. 
To recap, in less than a decade, sardine landings went from over 300,000 tons to one. At this point, most of the sardine fleet had moved to fish here in Southern California, as the landing numbers were a little bit better, but not by much and not for long. However, none of that was any concern to Doc Mack and the rest of Cannery Row. Life was good. One day, Mack and the boys got to thinking. That Doc is a fine fellow. We ought to do something for him. They settle on throwing him a party, however... It's going to take dough to give Doc a party. If we're going to give him a party at all, it ought to be a good one. But they had a good idea on how to get some money. Got a nickel apiece for frogs. So, Mac goes to Doc looking for work to pay for a party for Doc. That Doc doesn't know Mac's throwing. He looked up a little nervously as Mac entered. It wasn't that trouble always came in with Mac, but something always entered with him. Mac tells Doc that he and the boys are looking to pick up some work. As it happens, Doc was in need for some frogs. He had a big order to fill. You just rest easy about frogs. Why, we can get them right up Carmel River. I know a place. Just you rest easy, Doc. Don't you lose no sleep about it. It may seem odd that a scientist is entrusting the local gang of alcoholics to collect frogs to fill an order, but you see, Mac was personable. He could appear reliable. I bet Matt could have been president of the U.S. if he wanted. It's just that his priorities weren't always in the right order. Ah, there wouldn't be no fun in that. And the truth is, Doc really did need those frogs. Mac and the boys drive out to Carmel River in a series of vignettes where Steinbeck feeds us Americana. Enchanted roads through sunlit landscapes seemingly ripe with opportunities and resources. The California Steinbeck wanted us to believe in. Mac and the boys collect more than enough frogs, and they return to Cannery Row ready to party. But, like I said, everything works in cycles on Cannery Row. Mac and the boys were at a high. The only place for them to go was down. They set up the party at Doc's lab, as Doc would be home later that night, and it was the only reasonable place to hold such an event. They convinced Lee Chong to give them booze, because frogs are as good as money, according to Mac. Mac and the boys start drinking that booze. The booze that was intended for Doc. They invite people over. They start to get into fights. Fun fights at first. Then not so much. They break some of Doc's valuable science instruments. They lose all of the frogs. And worse, they break some of Doc's favorite music records. Doc gets back to find his home and his livelihood in absolute chaos. We'll pay for it, Doc. No, you won't, Mac. You'll think about it and it'll worry you for quite a long time. But you won't pay for it. Both the characters of Cannery Row and the sardines themselves are at a low. How they cycle back up after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Welcome back. 
You're listening to Device, and I am your host, Emily T. Griffiths. For our final episode of the season, we're discussing Cannery Row by John Steinbeck, where the sardine fishery in the novel and in real life are the heartbeat of this sleepy seaside community. That was what mostly made their living. And I mean, back then, the stories that we hear is that it was seemed like it was uh, an endless source of food and income. But unfortunately, that's not what it was, as they found out the hard way. You know, the, the crash of the sardines at that period is actually what prompted this study to start 70-ish years ago. Because we observed that sardines were disappearing back in 1947, a landing tax was introduced to fund research on the true cause of sardine stock fluctuations. And by 1949, the California Cooperative Oceanic Fisheries Investigations, or CalCoffee, program was created. That there were a lot of sardines that they could, like, walk on them. There were so many sardines out there, and then all of a sudden there weren't any sardines. And the fishermen were like, well, you know, what happened? Why is, why is this so? Yeah. And initially, I think most people thought it was uh, just overfishing populations can be overfished. Overfishing means to fish a species at a higher rate than it can reproduce. During the fishery collapse in the 1950s, fishing fleets were exploiting 50% of the sardine population. That's a much higher rate than sardines could replace themselves. However, having gone studied the data and over the last 30 years, it's, it's it's not always about overfishing. Y'all, there's a lot of other factors involved. Populations can be pretty resilient. The whole answer has a lot to do with sardine biology. First, sardines don't do well in cold waters. They prefer 50 degrees Fahrenheit or warmer. Second, they're kind of picky eaters. Sardines eat small plankton at or near the base of the food web. They haven't evolved to eat large particulate matter. It'll just clog them up. Especially in areas where there's like upwelling, and you, so you have all of these nutrients coming up to the surface, and the phytoplankton run into that and they go, dude, this is styling, and they just go off, you know? Meaning that the phytoplankton gets bigger, and sardines can't eat them. But you know who doesn't mind colder waters or larger prey? Anchovies. Historically, they, they kind of do that. It's kind of a yin and yang. When anchovies are in high density, the sardines kind of wane. Mm-hmm. Like after the crash of the Pacific sardine in the late 30s, early 40s, when we started studying the sardine, we noticed the anchovy populations starting to rise. We can see this natural cycle throughout history, too. You can look at sediment core samples from the Santa Barbara Basin, and you see there's concentrations of sardine scales that are very high for X amount of years, and then you'll see concentrations of anchovy scales that are high for certain amounts of years. While not exact, there is a noticeable historic trend that sardine and anchovy populations cycle, switching every 50 to 80 years. So when the sardine fishery crashed, was it due to a natural regime shift? Or was it due to overfishing? Or was it due to both? 
I mean, there's we'll, we can we'll never really know. Yeah. I mean, but we can hypothesize as to what it is. We can make educated guesses. All this means is that in the 1930s and early 40s, when the sardine fishery was at its peak and we were taking hundreds of thousands of tons out of the ocean, count it up, boys. That's probably not what caused the crash. Hmm. What is going on here? It was in the 50s when the waters started getting cooler and anchovies were on the rise. We kept fishing sardines at a high rate. The sardine stocks were at their lowest in the 1960s, but officials still didn't close the fishery until 1974. Today, we're smarter about it. Cal Coffee surveys are still collecting data, and they have been for 70 years. It's being used to monitor the sardine population in real time. And all that data, at least at the center that I work, is used to like directly impact the sardine stock assessment, which then gets sent to council meetings, and then fishermen and the government work together to fix or to set fishing quotas. Collaborative decisions are made. This system is working. The sardine population did bounce back in the 1980s, and it reopened in 1991, peaking in 2006. But if there's a peak, there has to be a valley. Everything cycles on Cannery Row. Sardine populations dropped in the 2010s, and in 2015, officials once again closed the fishery. So for the past couple of years, the sardine fishery in California has been closed because we're not finding a lot of sardines. So that's one of the reasons why the Southwest Fisheries is <clears throat> pushing specifically this year to look harder at the anchovy to give the council a better idea as to how healthy that population is so that the fishing council can then recommend catch limits for anchovies. And then if it's a catch limit of a size that's favorable for a fisherman, they might change their gear and go for that fish. The Pacific sardine fishery, as well as the anchovy, mackerel, cow cod, and various other fish that share resources with the sardine, it's all part of a larger system that closely monitors fish populations so they can be here for future generations to enjoy. They're delicious, by the way. Oh. Especially fresh. I mean, when we catch them fresh out here, they're delicious. After the dust settles and Cannery Row starts slipping into its reliable ways, Mac and the boys start planning another party for Doc. This time we'll be sure he gets to the party. If he doesn't get there, we don't give it. Amazingly. Mac and the boys tell all the right people on the row that they're throwing Doc a birthday party. And word seeps out. Everyone starts preparing gifts and favors. Though no one tells him, Doc figures out Mac's planning a second event, and he embraces it. Reasoning that his house will be the party's location yet again, he locks away his valuables that hadn't been destroyed the first time. And at 8 p.m. prompt... Mac and the boys approach Western Biological Laboratory with jugs of fresh booze. The rest of the row shortly follows with presents in hand. Things are back how they started. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, sardine populations aren't back to what they were. We don't know if landing numbers will ever be as large as they were again. Although, even though the sardine fishery is currently closed, odds are that it will open again. Insight from Cal Coffee opened the fishery once before. Until then, Cal Coffee researchers are going to keep counting eggs and larvae. Look at all the fish that you can see in there, you know? I mean, like, there's looks to be a, a, a small rockfish juvenile. And there's some other, looks what could be like anchovy and sardine. They'll keep monitoring phytoplankton levels, the plant-based plankton that sardines and anchovies love to eat. But what this is doing is it's, it's determining the, the concentrations of the major nutrients that would support primarily phytoplankton. So nitrate, nitrite, silicate, phosphate, and ammonia. Pretty much everything here uh, is related to phytoplankton growth. The silicate for the diatoms, mm -hmm. um, everything needs phosphate to grow. You know, if you've had a garden, you know. And we haven't even scratched the surface of the physical data they're collecting. So we're looking at these, this is four graphs that are kind of overlaid on top of each other of oxygen, Correct. salinity, temperature, and fluorescence? Correct. Okay, and... Oxygen, temperature, salinity, and fluorescence. They're taking these measurements and collecting seawater from up to 500 meters deep. And they trap the seawater at a particular depth so it can be brought up and analyzed on board. The target depths are standardized, and it's the same depths that we've been doing for 70 years. Long-term data sets like these are critical for any analysis of climate change, ocean acidification, and the ecological problems we've barely begun to analyze. I'm sure there's microplastics in there, but we won't know that till we actually look through this sample. What more, this data is free. Anyone, including you, can download it from the Cal Coffee website and use it for your research or for your interest. It's currently being used by various state, federal, and private organizations, including NASA. And outside organizations can provide third-party feedback to make the data better. And what's great is a lot of times uh, end users find some discrepancies that may have filtered through the point-checking process so we can make corrections. This data can tell so many stories. We just have to let them crawl out. Whereas this, you know, you're seeing the ocean kind of real time. And, the ones about the depth we don't see the same. You know, this is, this is unique. Meaning, in, you know, this moment in time, you, you have a snapshot of what, oh, that's good. what's going on. Can I turn off And that wraps up season one. If you want there to be a season two, you can do a few things. Number one, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you like or don't like about this show. Two, let me know what eyebrow-raising books I should be reading. 
You can either send me a message at emilytgriffiths.com or leave a voicemail at 619-784-5065. Who knows? Maybe you'll find yourself on a future episode of Device. Device is co-produced by myself and Derek Acosta. It is recorded at KPPS and Mega64 Studios in San Diego, California. John Wanzer is our audio engineer with additional music by the Bicycats. Maurice Ravel's Havain for a Dead Princess was performed by Wasai Duo at Museum of Romanticism in Madrid on November 3rd, 2015. Voice actors for this episode include Dan Cheatham, Tom Stewart, Mark Atkinson, and Dyke Anihuo. At KPBS, Emily Jankowski is technical director, Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator, Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is director of programming. You can get other episodes of Device on your preferred podcast app. Many thanks to the Cal Coffee researchers Dave Faber, Emily Gardner, Amy Hayes, Brian Overcash, and James Wilkinson, who appeared in this episode. Also, shout out to Angela Clementson, Ann Schulberg, and Dan Schuler, who I also interviewed, but I wasn't able to fit into this episode. Due to the quality and chaos of ship recordings, I am not going to release the full interviews, but please check out calcoffee.org. That's C-A-L-C-O-F-I.org to learn more about the Cal Coffee Project. Maybe download some data. Get your nerd on. You do you. Big thanks to the command and crew of the NOAA ship Ruben Lasker for being tolerant of me and my microphone, and to John Hildebrand, Simone Bauman-Pickering, and Jenny Tricky for securing a space for me on the ship. Remember, showing your support is the best way to keep the device podcast alive. But for now, it has been an amazing ride to complete this first season. And I couldn't have done it without support from listeners like you. And of course, the KPBS Explore program because science is at the heart of every exploration and the best stories take us somewhere worth going. Thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.